The following message extends the teaching or preaching ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. The speakers you will hear may be our church pastors, lay teachers, or outside guest speakers. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this material in any format. May God bless your study of his word. It's a delight to be here. Nevin, thanks for your words and kitchen crew and everyone who helped to make this possible. Thank you for that delicious dinner. It was great. Good to see all of you here. Yeah, thank you, man. I've given my testimony various times over the years, of course, and it's probably been a decade or more since I've given it here at Westminster. Last week I thought, you know, I'm just going to do my testimony without looking at my past testimonies. You know, sometimes it's hard to kind of use old stuff. I thought, I was going to do it without even looking at it. So I wrote it down. I thought, they gave me a half hour. So I try to be less than that. But I thought, if I write it down, I won't be so long. So you should be glad I wrote it down, right? Because then it's concise. But I want to talk about my conversion and then some about my stuttering and just God's work. It was entitled, I gave him, My Grace is Sufficient, Lessons on the Depths of Our Sin, the Surprising Good News of the Gospel, and God's Faithful Working Through Suffering and Hardship. And really, I don't have a dramatic testimony, but every testimony is an amazing testimony of God's grace, whether it's dramatic or not. So I'm not on the dramatic side, but still very thankful to God for what he's done in my life. And um, just glad to be with you here to talk about it. First, my conversion. I was raised in a church going home with loving parents, the middle child, with an older sister and a younger sister. I like to say I was the rose between the thorns. They didn't like that. My father was a math professor at Dickinson College in Carlisle, not far from here. Our Presbyterian church was largely a social gospel church. That means, for those of you who haven't heard that word, means all the right biblical words are regularly used. Faith, love, Jesus, the cross, the resurrection. However, the main sense I got growing up is that God is a good, benevolent being. He sent Jesus as an example, and yes, he died for our sins, and so we all should give him his due. Go to church, try to be good, try to love others, don't break any commandments, which would mean doing something really bad like murder or stealing. And in the end, all will be well, you will go to heaven which, by the way, sounded like a pretty boring place to me. Of course, there was very little mention, if any, that I can remember of sin or repentance or certainly of hell. And I may have just missed it, but growing up, I never even knew that there was such a doctrine as the second coming of Christ. I never knew that. Our family was very faithful. My dad was an elder. We were regulars in Sunday school. In fact, I always tried to get the perfect attendance Sunday school prize every year, 52 Sundays without missing. That meant that if we did get to go to the New Jersey shore for the weekend in the summer, I would go to Sunday school in a church there and get a certain coded note that I could take back and guarantee that I would get the prize. So I grew up pretty happy home. In high school, I poured myself into getting A's, playing sports, which was my first love, soccer, wrestling, tennis, and skiing when I could fit it in. Also, I was part of a close-knit group of friends. We dubbed ourselves the Bachelor Seven because none of us dated very much, and we spent most Friday and Saturday evenings playing the game Risk or playing Penny Annie Poker in one of our basements. Then we would go out for pizza afterwards. 
We were not in the cool group in school in that sense, but we also took pride that we were above that. All of us were churched, but none of us would have thought seriously about God being any active part of our lives. I would say that I thought of myself at that time as a good young man. I didn't smoke or drink or do drugs. Outwardly, I was a good guy, I thought. If you would have asked me what I would have said if I stood before God, I would have said that I would have hoped that my good would outweigh my bad. I kind of looked at my life that way. Plus, I believed in God and Jesus, and I had joined the church. That was probably good enough. That's how I thought. Of course, I didn't think about those things very much. In fact, one of my friends, not one of my six Bachelor 7 friends, had made a stir our junior year in high school when he had become a serious Jesus fanatic and had began buttonholing various friends to challenge them about whether they were saved or not. This word went around, of course, and I remember thinking at the time, well, if Jeff talks to me, I will just tell him that I believe in Jesus and I'm sure I'm fine in terms of religion. He never talked to me. I might add that about that time, I decided to start reading the Bible. And I started with Genesis, got to Leviticus, and got bogged down, and that was it. I stopped. Never got back on track. So by the time I started college at Dickinson, which was a good deal for me because I got to go for free because my dad taught there, soccer was my life. I would say soccer was my idolatry. I had trained all that summer before my freshman year, and I remember getting home from my summer job at about 9.30 in the evening and going out to run every night and ending usually between 11 and 12 with wind sprints and just sprint a block, walk a block, jog a block, sprint a block, just doing all I could to get in shape. And that fall, I ended up being one of two freshmen to start on the varsity team at Dickinson. And not only that, I ended up being the high scorer on the team. What a heady experience. But being Pennsylvania Dutch on my dad's side, my pride was kept very understated and very humble, just so you know. (laughs) At the same time, I won the freshman math prize in the math department. I won the freshman physics prize in the physics department. I thought, well, things are going pretty well. And I decided to join the soccer fraternity and start living on campus my sophomore year instead of living at home, which I did the first year riding my bicycle back and forth. And it was my sophomore year that God began to awaken me from the dead. It's interesting. Even as I wrote this this week, there were times that I just got overwhelmed, just in the goodness of God. And I think about my high school friends, and two of my closest friends, of the six close friends, died in the past two years. I was sitting by one of them at his bedside up at the Hershey Medical Center, an attorney I don't think he ever came to know Christ. And I just think of God calling me to himself. So even thinking back to that time, even after all these years, I moved at God's grace. The human instrument that God initially used in my life was a soccer friend. His name was Kerry. I invited Kerry to an event at our fraternity. And to my surprise, he showed up with a Bible in hand and told me he had to leave early from our event to go to a Bible study in a dorm. Inwardly, I was shocked because he seemed like a normal guy to me. But I immediately blurted out, unthinkingly, can I come along with you? I don't know what I was thinking. And I went along with him, and he said, of course, you know, you can come. And I still remember all these years later, the sense that I had at that meeting in that dorm room. Here were my fellow Dickinson College students. I didn't know most of them. 
who took the Bible very seriously, who were studying it to learn how it spoke to their lives. And then when they prayed at the end, they prayed in normal everyday words, not like saying the standard grace before meal, which I was used to, or like not the official prayer the pastor would pray. They really meant what they were praying. They were really talking to God. And I was overwhelmed with the sense that God was in that place in a way that I had never understood or seen before. Later that evening, Carrie walked back with me to my fraternity, and I asked him how I could get whatever he and they had. And he shared the gospel with me, and I think he probably went through a tract with me and then gave me the tract. And I remember that night praying the sinner's prayer up in my room and for many nights to come, praying the sinner's prayer over and over again for a couple months just to make sure it took because I wanted to be sure that I was saved. And I also started attending meetings of the Dickinson Christian Fellowship, an intervarsity Christian fellowship group that was entirely student-led. There were no staff workers at our school. It was just students. And a lot of us didn't know much of anything. Suddenly, I had this new deep desire to read the Bible. And I began learning how to pray, and the Lord immediately began to change my life. I would categorize these under three headings. One was a sense of my sin, an understanding of the Lordship of Christ, and a calling to identify with God's people. Those three things, as I thought about it this week, stick out of my mind. A sense of my sin. When I came to Christ and understood salvation by grace alone through faith alone, I would say that when I came to Christ, my understanding of sin was very superficial. You know, the Puritans came to Christ by having the law preached to them and being, you know, smitten with the law for months or years and then finally coming to Christ. And I'm not saying there's a prescribed way to come, but usually you think you have a deep sense of your sin. I don't think I had much of a sense of a sin at all. I just came to Christ wanting whatever they had. And then in the months after that, having an increased sense of the sinfulness of my sin. I knew I was a sinner and needed Christ, but I didn't know anything about the deceitfulness of my heart. And so God began shining his light on my wrong desires, my extreme self-orientation, even in a normal, humble way, right? My fear of man and worries about what others would think, even my spiritual pride at that point. Of course, that process is still happening even after all these years seeing my sin, but seeing even more the beauty and the glory and the sufficiency of Christ. But second, a growing understanding of the lordship of Christ, the realization that Jesus Christ demanded my life, my full submission to him, my surrender of my life, that was a startling truth to me. You mean this is what the gospel is about, that I need to repent and give Jesus my life and he is my Lord and rules over me? I'd never realized that in the church. A far cry from the idea that I had had that, you know, you give God his due Sunday morning and a little bit of money, a little bit of time, and that, that's good. The cost of following Christ impacted everything. How I spent my time, the things I counted most important, the kind of girl I would date. She would need to be a Christian. Even what kind of music I would listen to. And I was probably excessive in these things. I threw out all my old music and everything. I'm not saying that everyone has to do that, but it was pretty severe. And then number three, the calling to identify with God's people. 
not only did I begin to attend the Christian fellowship meetings, I also began to sit frequently in the cafeteria with the much-despised Christians. I distinctly remember doing this for the first time and then walking by the tables where my fraternity sat and some of them just mocking me, laughing at me and razzing me about this. But I wanted to do that, even if it wasn't the cool group to be with or anything. And soon I began to question whether I should even be part of the fraternity. After all, our dues went mostly to just buying alcohol for parties on the weekend and marijuana that some of the brothers used. And by the middle of my junior year, I had come to the conviction that I needed to move home. And so I decided to tell the brotherhood at a weekly meeting. And I remember praying and fasting for a day or two beforehand and then attempting to tell the 35 brothers assemble. And I'm sure my attempt fell woefully short of making any sense to them, partly because of the foolishness of the gospel itself, but partly because of my extreme stuttering and my inability to even, you know, eke out a few words without stuttering severely. So I moved home. And this brings me to my second part of my testimony, which is about God's faithful working in my life through suffering. I do not consider myself to be someone who has suffered greatly. In the ministry over the years, I've seen many people who have suffered much more than I have. So I'm certainly, you know, we're all on that spectrum somewhere. We all suffer, you know, normal everyday things, and we never know in what season of our life we're going to suffer a lot more. But certainly I cannot say that I have someone who suffered greatly. But if I had to say what has been the greatest suffering in my life, it would certainly be the experience of stuttering. I began stuttering when I was about age five or six. And by the way, 90% of stutterers are boys, interestingly. And much of modern theory about stuttering centers on the brain and brain development and so on. But what happens in stutterers is that a person develops fears about the association of certain words or sounds, and habits become self-fulfilling. And if somebody tells you, now stop and think about what you're saying and say, you know, that makes it even worse. That's what you don't want to do. And so the stuttering just becomes worse and worse. And for anyone who hasn't ever stuttered, which is most of you, I'm sure, everybody stutters a little bit, but it's not like a true stutterer. It's hard to imagine how all-pervasive stuttering can be and how much it affects your life. As a boy in elementary school, I quickly got used to being teased and jokingly imitated. You know, kids just do that. I pretty much tried to just ignore it or laugh along with it, but it did create limitations in my life. It was very difficult for me to talk on the phone. I could not call a girl on the phone, that's for sure. Any public speaking was pretty much out of the question for me. And I remember in 10th grade having to give a three-minute speech. And I practiced the night before with my three-by-five note cards that I had my speech written down. And sure enough, it was a three-minute speech. But when I gave it, it was a seven-minute speech. It just gives you an idea of how painful. And it was very painful for the students. The teacher and the students were all very gracious and kind. And I think I at least got a C on it. But I was mortified. Likewise, morphing ahead to my college years when I was in the Christian fellowship group and being in groups and the people would pray out loud, I remember still the first time I tried to pray in a group out loud and just stuttered so badly. And everyone was very kind, but just doesn't make you want to pray out loud or say anything out loud. 
As I grew in Christ, I began to have a desire to teach the Bible. I played the guitar at the time, and I led songs, and it's great when you're a stutterer. You can at least sing and not stutter, so I can at least do that. But I began to really be interested in the Bible, and I was majoring in math and minoring in physics, but I began immediately. Dickinson offered a Judaic studies program. I could take Hebrew. I could take Greek. I began to take as many Hebrew and Greek classes as I can and still finish up in math and physics, which I immediately did. I didn't really have a positive impression of being a pastor. That was not something on my radar. But I began to sense God's calling to be used by him in some way like that. I didn't know what it would be at that time. If you would have told me I would have been a Presbyterian pastor, I said, you're crazy. At the same time, our college fellowship group was being deeply impacted by the teaching of the charismatic movement that was sweeping the country in the early 70s. And by the way, I think there was a genuine awakening going on, the Jesus movement going on. When I look back at our fellowship group, I think there was not a staff person there, but students were coming to Christ right and left, and our fellowship was growing. There were Bible study groups. Usually you need a staff person to make this happen. Somebody who's being paid to do this, but no, it was going on. But with a charismatic emphasis, I quickly adopted the name it, claim it, faith theology of healing. And I had multiple experience in those college years of groups laying hands on me and praying for me for healing of my stuttering. Each time I would get my hopes up and think that maybe God will work a miracle this time and I would get up off my knees and be fluent, able to speak. But, of course, each time I would be disappointed and wonder, what did I get wrong? Did I just not have enough faith? Was I not rebuking Satan in the right way? Did I need to fast more beforehand or after or something like that? I really had no idea of a biblical theology of God working through suffering for my ultimate good and for his glory. I had no clue about that. Meanwhile... My junior year, I met the girl of my dreams, and in a few months, Patty and I were engaged to be married the year after my senior year. And by the way, Patty is one of the, my hardest words to say throughout my life. How do you like that? I should have you know, given her some other nickname. <laughs> we got married after my senior year, and we moved to Texas, to Fort Worth, where I taught school, and she finished her degree at TCU. I soldiered on trying to teach high school with my stuttering. My first teaching year, I had somewhat of a baptism of fire. I eventually learned that year that one of my ninth grade science sections, the class was the infamous worst group to ever come through a Fort Worth Country Day School. Nobody told me this in advance. (laughs) And I was a rookie who didn't know anything. Needless to say, I did not have an easy time. I remember sitting at the lunch table with the other teachers listening to the conversation but not really ever trying to say anything. That's how my stuttering affected me. I just couldn't talk. And teacher conference evening was always especially difficult when I had to try to give a little speech to the parents in my classroom. That was even more stressful for me. Always very embarrassing, very humbling, just stressful We had joined a Bible church in Fort Worth, and by that time, I was having questions about my charismatic theology. If I had the baptism in the Holy Spirit, which I thought I had, and was living a victorious Christian life, why did I still struggle with sin? 
Also, all of our friends at church and in our Bible study group, which was a great group, who weren't charismatic, seemed to be just as devoted to God and trusting Jesus and spirit-filled and evangelistic as I was. I was confused. They didn't have the baptism in the spirit, and I did. After two years in Fort Worth, we headed off to seminary at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois. In the back of my mind, I think I had the idea that certainly God would heal me of stuttering if I pursued the pastoral ministry. Doesn't that make sense? Seminary was a time of wonderful spiritual growth, of drinking from a fire hydrant, of biblical teaching and theology, and even Reformed theology from a number of my professors. Some of you may know the names of D.A. Carson, David Wells, Walter Kaiser, Doug Moo, John Woodbridge, and others. We struggled financially during those years, made dear friendships, saw our first child come into the world, but still, my stuttering was just as bad. I tried using an experimental device that was being produced and used by speech therapists in the Chicago area called the Edinburgh Masker. I think it was developed in Scotland. The Edinburgh Masker, it had a little hookup with ear things and something on your throat that when you spoke, it picked up the vibrations of your vocal cord and made a buzz in your ear. So you couldn't hear yourself speak. You just hear, you couldn't hear yourself. And for a stutterer, when he can't hear himself, then he's kind of relaxed, and he doesn't know what he's doing, and he can speak. And so this was being experimented with and tried. And somehow the producers of the TV show, That's Incredible, learned about this device and wanted to do a story on it, and they knew there was a budding pastor in this program there in the Chicago area, so they brought their show you know, to our school, and I got filmed preaching this little sermonette at our local church where we were involved, and it was funny because then they wanted me to stutter really badly, and the way to get a stutterer not to stutter is to tell him to stutter. So they were there like, tell us about this. Tell us about that. I was just talking away, completely fluent. And they said, we got to have you stutter. You know, and I said, well, I'm very good at faking it. So I faked stuttering for the show. <laughs> That's what aired. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> uh, well, the problem with the Edinburgh Masker was that eventually a person gets used to it and stutters anyway. And in fact, I had one very embarrassing experience in my pastoral internship when I was using it to preach a sermon. You know, I still wasn't able to do this very well. But not only did I stutter really badly, but I had no inflection or intonation because it's hard to do that. And so it was just a disaster. Even thinking about it now, I cringe. It's just awfully embarrassing. You would think, why in the world would you go ahead and keep pursuing a career which required you to speak? And I look back now and think, if I were advising such a young man today, I'm certain I would try to dissuade him from pursuing the ministry. Unless he really deeply felt called to it, then I would say, well, go ahead and try. But you're not going to get a church. I think for me it was a mixture of genuine calling by God. I still believe that I was being called by God, mixed in with the idealism of youth, along with a dose of leftover charismatic theology. That's how I kind of look at it now. I kept thinking, surely God will remove this affliction when I've learned whatever it is that I need to learn, and then he will let me be more able to speak. We accepted the call for me to be the solo pastor of the Hanover Evangelical Free Church. 
It was really with the sense, okay, Lord, here goes. If you do not help me, I can do nothing. Uh, I just remember feeling that way and was really somewhat surprised when the search committee called me. They were really desperate, you know. (laughs) I was doing an internship in my hometown, and I was only an hour away, so they didn't have to fly me in. It was kind of like, okay, we'll try you. (laughs) No, they were very kind. I'm sure that I felt the sense of inadequacy and utter dependence on the Lord much more than the average new pastor feels. I know that every new pastor feels that to some extent, I certainly had absolutely no sense of being able to wow the congregation with my great oratory. Far, far from it. First of all, I could simply not speak off the cuff. I couldn't do announcements without writing them down. This is how bad it was. I'm just trying to give you a sense of this. I had to prepare everything. Then there were some words that were especially hard, you know, plosive words, certain words like baptism, water. Just I could list about 20 words that you can't avoid in Scripture, and I would hate these words. And any stutterer knows it's so blessed for me at this point when I don't stutter as much that I don't have to do the mental gymnastics because stutterers are always thinking of the next words they're going to say and what they can do to avoid saying certain words. So you have to say things in odd ways, and you're trying to weaving through these words like terrible words that you never want to say. In those days, a good sermon for me was less than 100 stutters in a 30-minute period. And I know because my speech therapist would have me go through this awful Homework of counting my stutters from the previous week. By the way, I'd been in speech therapy since elementary school, high school, in college some, in seminary was speech therapy, then in my first church. So I've been through speech therapy. I could be a speech therapist for stutters. So even in my best sermons were pretty bad. Of course, the people there were very gracious. The people in our New Jersey church plant, the PCA church plant I eventually went to, were gracious as well, and the folks here. Folks who have been here since I came know that I've improved a lot since I've been here as well. But there were Mondays when I really struggled with discouragement and whether I should just give up. I would say that it was in those years that the Bible's teaching on suffering and weakness really began to hit home with me. And I adopted 2 Corinthians 12.9 as my life verse. You probably know it. Paul's talking about his thorn in the flesh, and he says, But he said to me, God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That verse and many other biblical passages about God's providence, his sovereignty, his work through our weakness and our suffering were just a balm of comfort to me, just gave me great encouragement and hope. And I would just kind of pick myself up after a bad Sunday and say, okay, Lord, I'm just trusting you. I began to pray, Lord, I trust you. If you will to take this completely away, your will be done. If you will to glorify your name with my speaking just the way it is, your will be done. I trust in you. If you will something in between, if you will that I slowly improve over the years, I will seek to be content whatever the pathway is. 
And I can't say I've been completely content by any means, but that's been my prayer, and all of you who know me for any length of time know that this slow improvement pathway is the pathway that the Lord has led me on for these 40 years. And after all these years, I'm at the place that my stuttering is largely gone. It just pops up once in a while and surprises me when I'm tired or if I'm stressed or if the subject's difficult. But I say to Patty sometimes, I say, tell me if I'm talking too much because I'm making up for all those years that I couldn't talk. (laughs) It's much more easy to be in groups now. And as I look back and I think about God's mysterious providence, why he gave me this particular thorn in the flesh, I do not have a definite answer. Many people have said to me over the years that hearing me stutter while preaching has helped them in some way with their own suffering or the weakness that they face or that I don't let that stop me from preaching. And so they're encouraged to seek to serve the Lord. And I'm always glad for those encouragements. But deep down, I would have preferred, to be honest with you, that the Lord would have removed it 40 years ago. It reminds me of the pastor who has the Mark Inc. ministry. He's a PCA pastor in Delaware. And they began that ministry when their 16-year-old son was killed in a car crash near their home. And he said on his resources, he says, we would much rather have Mark back than have this ministry, but we're content with the Lord working in this way, and we're seeking to trust him. Years ago, I read something in John Piper's book, Future Grace, about his reflection on a particular weakness he had in his youth, and I related to it. Piper could not do public speaking in his high school and college years without deep anxiety. He would get up and he would be shaking He had anxiety so badly, and so he completely avoided it as much as he could. Then one day, you probably know the story, at Wheaton College, he was asked to pray in chapel the next day, and that was a novel idea for him. He'd never thought about public prayer, and he wrestled with the Lord, and he ended up saying to the Lord, Lord, if you enable me to somehow do this, I will never again turn down the opportunity to speak publicly again. And if you know the story, the Lord enabled him to publicly pray, and he's kept that vow to the Lord. And so he prayed, and we might say, well, the rest is history as we know his story. But this is the point. Commenting on this affliction, this anxiety he had as a youth, John Piper says that he believes God used it in his life to make him as a youth more serious-minded and sober and less easily tempted to just go wholesale down the pathway of the world. In other words, it was a wise discipline of God in his life. I would have to hope that in some way God also used my stuttering in that way in my life. I can't say that I was particularly serious-minded as a young person like John Piper was. In fact, I was more of the opposite. I was the class clown When my seventh-grade science teacher heard that I had entered the ministry, he is purported to have said, John Light? He's the last person in the world I would have expected to hear that about. (laughs) He had me sitting in the front row in the middle of class for a reason, right by his desk, because I tended to be a joker. But I think that it was especially in my Christian experience that God used this affliction to teach me his grace and power in weakness. Certainly it has made me more prayerful and dependent because I have known that it is certainly not going to be my great speaking that is going to do anything to impact anyone. No, if people are helped at all by my preaching and my ministry, 
It's going to be the power of the gospel and the word of God that's going to bring new life and change people in their hearts in spite of me and the human weakness. And as I grew in Christ and his word, what happened was that my grief over my remaining sin and my dullness of heart actually became a greater sorrow as a Christian than my suffering with stuttering. The truth is, each of us is much weaker in and of ourselves than we ever imagined. We are upheld every second by the sheer power and mercy of our God. Without him, we can do nothing, whatever the task might be. And as Paul the Apostle says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. As a pastor, I can't help but close with three brief points. One, if you haven't come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, I pray that you would seek him and ask him to open your eyes to your sin and need. As someone who once was utterly blind to that as a young man, I pray that God would open your eyes to that. Ask him and also to open your eyes to the great fullness of mercy in Jesus Christ. Second, whatever weakness or suffering or hardship is part of your life right now, and Nevin talked about his experience, and there will be probably many types of suffering in all of our lives, and you never know what tomorrow will bring, as James says. Whatever weakness or suffering, ask the Lord to give you grace to trust him and to use it in your life for his glory, for your good, even if you can never see or guess the reason for it. Trust him. And thirdly, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. He is the great author and finisher of our faith. He is at work to complete the good work he's begun in our lives, and he will do it. In this life, we fight and war against remaining sin. We go through many ups and downs. We grieve most of all our dullness of heart and the weakness of our faith. But Jesus Christ is faithful. He is the good shepherd of our souls, and he will see us through until we see him face to face. And in that day, I will no longer be stuttering, but singing his praise. Amen. Thank you.